This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Dare to Brew Different with new and exciting hop varieties from Hopsteiner's industry-leading breeding program. Varieties like Sultana, Lotus, Bravo, Altus, and Contessa are now available in lupulin pellet form, packing more flavor and aroma per pellet. Discover more at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. We deal in a hazardous environment. There's, we do have corrosive chemicals. We do have uh, things that are under pressure. Uh, and having the appropriate gear uh, is a big deal. This week on the show, we count down the greatest hits that breweries take when OSHA shows up. Hi, my name is Dana Johnson. I'm the Technical Director of Craft Brewing at Burko Corporation in Denver, Colorado. Hello, my name is Gary Nicholas. I'm the Operations Manager for Santan Brewing and Distilling located in Chandler, Arizona. Hi, I'm Brian Godfrey. I'm the current chair for the Master Brewers Association's Brewery Safety Committee. The Master Brewers Brewery Safety Committee is constantly putting out free, practical resources breweries can leverage to keep their employees safe. Not too long ago, one of those resources was a top 10 OSHA brewery inspection citation list. Brian, you're the current chair of the Brewery Safety Committee. What was the impetus behind this document? Well, a couple of things. The One of them being that we've had uh, and we've seen an increased number of breweries being uh, inspected or visited by OSHA compliance officers. And, and secondly, um, watching the trends of injuries and illnesses uh, and, and the data that's out there, it kind of led us to be able to produce this information to give us some key points to look at to ensure that the breweries are safe and operating correctly. Also, I wanted to point out an, another cool thing about this simple one pager that you guys published is that for each of the top 10 violations, you also list past toolbox talks that address each issue. So this is a great document that any brewery could use to quickly achieve readiness for all of the top 10 OSHA violations, right? Correct. Yeah, we listed the most prominent ones from the toolbox talks, but there are obviously other ones that are available there that would address some of these hazards as well. Okay, so we've got three members of the Brewery Safety Committee here with us today in a top 10 list to work through. I guess we should channel our inner Casey Kasem and do a countdown here. So who wants to start with number 10? 
So, uh, number 10, uh, control of hazardous energy. And specifically, that is going to mean lockout, tagout in this context. So, the big thing that happens with lockout, tagout, uh, there's, there's four basic pieces that they're going to be looking at. Uh, the first is, if it's not written down, as far as they're concerned, it does not exist. So, there, there must be a formal written plan. Uh, we actually have under MBA, we have a uh, template for that. Uh, once you have a written plan, you actually need to train people on it. And you need to be able to document that people have been trained on it, uh, the dates, what went, what was gone over, uh, who was in attendance uh, during those training sessions. Uh, number three, you need to actually have the equipment and it needs to be the correct equipment. Um, that is one of the big pieces that, uh, they will ding you for is having the most basic kit that doesn't actually pertain to your work environment, uh, is basically having no kit at all. And then as long as you have everything, you have the written plan, you have the training, you have the equipment, none of this can just live on a binder. It actually has to be implemented and used regularly. Uh, and something an inspector can and will do is walk up to an employee and just say, explain to me how you would lock this out. And they can tell pretty quickly if it's, that's never being done. Um, and that that's, what's going to lead to a citation. We did an episode about number nine back in March. That was episode 204. Who wants to talk about confined spaces? So, um, for permit required confined spaces, we, we want to look at first, you know, what is a confined space? And, and like you said, you know, we've had an episode on that before, so I won't get into it too much. But the, the important part for breweries to understand is you've got to identify those confined spaces. So, you know, when you look at OSHA, it says, you know, it's being large enough for an employee to get into. It's got limited ways of getting in and getting out. And it's not designed for you to be in it. Um, so we're looking at things like our bright tanks and our fermenters and, you know, the mash tuns and, and louders and those things as potential confined spaces. Um, and then, you know, if there are potentials for you to become entrapped in those or engulfed by anything. So think of a, a, one of your silos where your grain is that you can become engulfed in it. Or if there's some type of atmospheric hazard and, and there's many other hazards that could be deemed there, you have to have a permit system to go into those. And, and part of that permit system is a, kind of like a checklist, a check and balance system that you're looking at, um, that people are trained to go in it, that they understand the hazards associated with it, that you have a rescue plan to get those people out of there. Um, you're required to have what's called an attendant. So when somebody goes into the confined space, there has to be a person who's outside at all times that's there as uh, kind of that emergency uh, scenario person that if something goes wrong, they can alert and get the rescue started or do whatever needs to be done. But the attendant cannot enter that confined space. So, and again, much like the uh, control of hazardous energy standard, we've got to have a written program here, things to give us guidance. We've got to have that training. We've got to have either uh, a rescue situation covered by a local fire department that we know they're capable of doing it, or we have to have our own rescue equipment and people are trained on that. So a lot of things uh, go into this, this program. It's pretty robust. Yeah. And I think the, the follow-up there is there is a way to reclassify a permit space as a 
non-permit space. It's under what's called the C7 exemption. Uh, not to get too in the weeds about C7, it sounds uh, super nerdy, but there are instructions in that for if the only hazards in a space are ones that can be de-energized or removed without actually entering it, as long as you go through the appropriate steps, you can reclassify a space and some of the components that Brian just described, you don't have to have at the ready. Where this gets people into trouble is they don't go through the steps. They'll say, it is a reclassified space, but I haven't checked it. I don't actually have a program. Uh, it's, it's more hand-waving than an actual uh, process. And that's where it trips people up uh, and has the risk of actually severely injuring, if not uh, leading to a, a fatality. Okay. And I guess um, I forgot to say we should have mentioned that this top 10 list is, um, I, I think we forgot to mention, is covering a specific period. So it's covering the period of October of 2019 through September of 2020. We know there was at least one confined space violation during that period. And we also know what that cost, whatever brewery had to deal with that. Um, so let's, let's keep that in mind too. What are some of the, let's talk about the financial penalties for some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, financial penalties can be pretty um, intense. Um, so when OSHA is assessing any kind of citations, they, they look at basically the, the knowledge and intent of, of the violation. So uh, if, if they look at something and they uh, determine that you knew you shouldn't be doing this and you did it willingly, then, then obviously that's what they call a willful violation and they can they can assess a higher amount of dollars to that citation. Um, in doing that calculation, they do look at your po um, prior experiences with OSHA, like if you've ever been ins inspected and those types of things. Um, you know, all that goes into account. And then kind of on the other end of the spectrum, if they, if they determine that you didn't know the hazard existed or didn't understand how to control it, um, you know, then, then that comes on the lower end of the spectrum. Um, you know, so... And then as they see things too, they can do these as, um, you know, repeat uh, violations. So if they have inspected you before and they come back and they see the same thing uh, again, then they classify that as a repeat. And then with that, um, it again, increases the amount of money that could be there. Uh, but the, the good thing about it is once they find a potential violation, uh, you have to go through that closing conference. And then there's a time period where they will then discuss that with you. They'll send back the proposed citations. So at that point, after the closing conference, it's just proposed. And then once they go through those um, with you, you have a point of time that you can contest those citations and have discussions about them. So there's, there's a lot of information that can be covered uh, it doesn't mean that when OSHA walks in the door and they find a, a potential violation that they're going to uh, shut you down. They, they can't do that uh, unless it's an imminent danger situation where they can stop the process because they feel like whatever's going on is going to immediately cause, you know, a serious injury or a fatality. Um, but other than that, it's, it's walking through a process of discussions and, and looking at the proposed citations, what the proposed penalties are. You can contest those. You can do things to, to correct the issues and, 
But in the end of the day, you know, especially smaller breweries that are in operation, even some of these small citations could be extremely harmful in the amount of money that they, they could assess as a fine. So in this case, we know that there is a brewery who had had a uh, confined space uh, violation and it cost them $1,720. Would that be on the the lower or the upper end of the spectrum in terms of uh, like, you, you know, being a willful violation and whatnot? Or, or can you, is it, is it hard to say? Well, no, that would have been on the lower end of things. Okay. Um, and, and right now the, the problem is that um, there were some changes that were made to uh, adjust the amount of money that could be cited uh, for OSHA. So like, for example, a repeat violation could be up to $75,000. So, you know, that, but they have to prove, you know, that there's been evidence of this same exact scenario occurring before. So they come in and they've cited you for, um, you know, uh, you know, as Gary had alluded to earlier, you know, not having the right lockout equipment. If that, if you come back again and you have the situation where you still don't have the lockout equipment, then that could be a repeat violation. Uh, so it has to be, you know, very close to the original one to get the repeat. Um, but they could assess zero dollars also if they feel like that um, you, you're you're working towards correcting an issue. It's not repeat. You're not a habitual offender. Those types of things. Okay, got it. All right. So number eight is a is a respiratory protection, which, as we learned back on episode one ninety two, can be rather complicated and is an area where some simple mistakes can get you in a lot of trouble. Tell us more about this violation. Well, I think I can take that one, um, John and uh, uh, Brian and Gary. Uh, the you know, because especially in the craft brewing industry, beards are very popular, um, and you know. I don't think that a lot of craft brewers, small craft brewers especially, realize that um, respirators uh, need to be fit tested. You know, if you're just using a dust mask, that's one thing. But um, if if you are using a respirator, I'm sorry, no beards are allowed uh, for that. And and you, moreover, more importantly than that, they they need to be fit tested uh, by a professional. And, and if they're not doing that, then, uh, they, they can get, uh, cited for that from OSHA. Well, yeah, there's a couple of things to keep in mind that when you're dealing with respiratory protection, um, much like we've already mentioned with the, the other topics that there is training that is required under the standard. Um, and as a part of this, before you just put somebody into a respirator, there's a couple of things you have to do. You have to evaluate your hazards to determine the appropriate type of respirator. You have to then um, give the employees some options of types uh, of the respirator, uh, you know, like maybe different manufacturers, so that they can then put those on and you do what's called a fit test to ensure that it fits them properly. But before you can even do the fit test, you have to actually have them medically cleared. So a physician or some states will allow like a nurse to to do the assessment where they have to um, be screened to ensure that they don't have any type of medical conditions that would prohibit them from wearing a respirator. So, you know, if they have, uh, I've seen scenarios where uh, severe asthma could be an item that limits how often or how much they could wear the respirator. Um, hypertension or high blood pressure could be a potential issue. Um, so they have to be screened by that physician in order to be able to wear it. Um, and, and then um, 
they have to be, as part of that training, they have to understand how to take care of that respirator, how to store it properly, when it's effective and when it's not. Because, um, you know, depending on the type of respirator, it, it may not be suited for every environment that you could go into. So there's, again, a lot of, of parts and pieces that come together for this to be a program that's successful. All right, got it. I can't help but think of episode 67 with Keith Miller and Scott Milbauer, which we re-released back in May for number seven here. And I'm kind of surprised the violation count isn't a little higher on this one, but somebody tell us about eye and face protection. So this gets us into personal protective equipment. Um, the big piece here and we, it just came up with the previous topic is it's actually doing a hazard analysis, you know, an assessment of what are the actual threats in the workplace? What kind of PPE do I need? Where, where do I need to wear it? Um, and then having the appropriate kind because safety glasses, there's basic safety glasses, there's face shields, uh, there's different types of gloves, different kinds of footwear. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a broad, there's, there's a reason that there are uh, multiple uh, toolbox talks uh, in our library about this topic. Um, so I think one of the pieces there, uh, John, that we've only had, you know, a handful or in this case, in the current time period that there was just one uh, citation. I wouldn't say that that's because everyone is doing things perfectly. It's more that folks are stretched uh, on the inspection side. And the question comes down to whether you're that one. Um, the bigger piece uh, that we just don't have the data for is how many emergency room visits, how many workers' comp claims were there uh, for chemical exposure to an eye. Um, which is the one that has the actual human cost. Uh, I think all, all of us would say that paying the fine, like I'll pay the fine. It's the human cost that we're trying to avoid. Um, and we deal in a hazardous environment. There's, we do have corrosive chemicals. We do have uh, things that are under pressure. Uh, and having the appropriate gear uh, is a big deal. You just mentioned things that are under pressure. Number six is compressed gases. And I see that you specifically called out a toolbox talk from Brewpub Safety here. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so we we did a Brewpub Safety um, toolbox talk a while back because um, there were some uh, citations in restaurants, uh, which uh, were not necessarily... Uh, the brew pub, but as we started looking at it, we thought, well, this could happen for us because we're in compressed gases. We're looking at CO2 um, as as one of our things. So when these compressed gases are in storage, they have to be stored a very particular way. Um, they have to be secured so that they don't just topple over and it shear off the the valve. You know, because those things can uh, go through a brick wall. Um, anybody can just Google that and see it on uh, YouTube. Uh, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, they have to be kept away from uh, fire and heat sources because depending on the gases in there, it could cause it to um, heat up and expand and, and off gas and, and create a, a potential flammable atmosphere, again, depending on what the gas is. I know some uh, larger breweries may have their own maintenance department, so they may have uh, welding equipment. Uh, 
you know, so the acetylene gases would be something that's going to be, you know, dangerous. Uh, so we, we did produce that to give a little information towards the, the brew pubs. Um, but then there's also um, just a general compressed gas usage and storage uh, toolbox talk that is there to answer questions um, if the brew pub scenarios don't um, fit your needs uh, when you're looking for something. Yeah, the CO2 um, in the uh, brew pubs and, you know, they really need monitors uh, where you're, you know, changing out kegs. And uh, that's something that's very important because it can be uh, very hazardous or deadly if the CO2, you know, concentration goes too high. Coming up. If you say, hey, you're not coming to my place, they have the ability to go to a magistrate or a local court and get a warrant just like any police officer and make entry into your facility. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. This episode is also sponsored by More Beer. Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more. HS Sativa, brought to you by BSG Hop Solutions. Meet the latest in the BSG Hop Solutions portfolio, HS Sativa. Strong expressions of stone fruit, floral, and resinous pine flavors and aromas define this blend. Crafted specifically for use in hazy IPAs and other hop-forward beers. HS Sativa is ideal for aroma, whirlpool, and dry hop additions to hazy and juicy IPAs, or for any other hoppy styles where a combination of citrus, tropical fruit, and pine aromatics are desired. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more, or call 1-800-374-2739. There's one more sponsor I should mention, and that's Muntins, offering a wide range of malted ingredients sourced within a 50-mile radius of their maltings. Listen to Nigel Davis discuss sustainability at Muntins on episode 206. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. Thanks to Rob Schwartz, who wrote in to let us know that District Rocky Mountain is offering a scholarship to the Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course. The deadline to apply is September 1st. Check the show notes for a direct link. District Midwest meets at the Yellow Springs Brewery Barrel Room September 18th. District St. Louis hits the links September 23rd. District Georgia meets at Southern Brewing in Athens September 24th. 
The District Ontario 2021 Iron Brewer Competition is September 24th. District Carolinas meets in Greenville, October 1st and 2nd. District Northwest will hold its annual meeting in Hood River, October 22nd and 23rd. There's one big meeting that's on my calendar. I hope it's on yours. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. Registration is open now. And don't forget the world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins October 31st. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Back to the show. Numbers four and five only had four combined violations for the one-year period you reviewed here, but the fines associated with those violations were over $17,000. What the heck is the general duty clause? So the general duty clause is... It seems like it's a it's a catch-all, and I guess in many ways that that is what it is. But uh, the reality of it is, it is placing a marker down that employers have an obligation to provide a workplace that is as safe as possible for their employees as well as uh, guests and visitors. Um, the what it specifically says is that an employer will provide employment and a place of employment that are free of recognized hazards that either are causing or are likely to cause death or serious harm. Um, it also lays down that employers have an obligation to comply with the occupational health and safety uh, standards under OSHA. It also has a second clause, which is that employees have to do this. This is a two-way street. Uh, the employers have an obligation and employees, uh, they do have to comply. Uh, so what it's referring to, and the reason it uses the term general, is just because there isn't a specific section, such as the ones we've talked about, controlling hazardous energies or confined space, uh, respiratory, just because it's not explicitly listed in uh, in the code does not mean that you could ignore it if you deem that it is creating an unsafe environment. Uh, one of so part of that is to avoid people from just looking at it and purely uh, painting by numbers. You actually have to look at the broader scope, and it's also to deal with. We live in a dynamic, moving environment. What are things that the law and the code of regulations has not caught up to, but is a current health or safety risk? All right. So um, number three always makes me think of those stickers you see on a lot of packaging equipment with that clip art hand getting crushed by the gears. What's going on here and what cost a couple of breweries more than six grand in penalties? 
Yeah, so in this situation, we're looking at um, what's called machine guarding. So think about um, maybe a canning line or a kegging line where there's moving parts where um, someone could have their hand caught or, um, you know, something like that. Or even um, looking at a, a mash ton, um, you know, if there's a rake in there and maybe the employee makes a confined space entry, um, but for some reason we don't lock out that rake, then that rake is able to move and that person becomes injured. Uh, you know, we didn't we didn't take care of guarding and things appropriately. So there's a lot of, of activity there. Um, and so what we're, we're looking at, and again, there's a toolbox talk on machine guarding on that. It's just looking at things from a perspective of, can an employee get a portion of their body into something that's moving uh, that could cause injury or damage? So any kind of rollers they, they, you know, that come together, that could be a, what they call a nip point. Uh, so wherever that point of operation is, you know, how does the employee engage with it? How's the, how do they interface and, and, and act with it? And then are there things we can do to keep them from either coming into contact with it while it's moving or to stop it uh, in a way if they cross a particular boundary? So, um, you know, in some breweries I've seen where they have what's called presence sensing mats, where if somebody's standing in an area, um, the machine... Um, would be designed that if you're in that particular area, it would operate. But if you stepped off of it, um, that machine would stop. Uh, you know, uh, light curtains, where if you put your hand across a certain area where these light beams are and you cross that, then that machine would stop. So it's it's all about trying to keep that employee or a visitor or, you know, a guest of any type or whatever, a contractor even, um, from being able to enter that piece of equipment and, and be injured because of the operation. And I think one of the big things to watch out for uh, is, are they being bypassed? Uh, that happens more than any of us would like, on, particularly on packaging equipment is where you see it uh, the most, uh, but it's areas where I might need to adjust that while it's running and I don't want to turn the machine off. Um, there, there's a place for that, but the issue is when it's overused and someone will either put, say, a magnet uh, to confuse a door sensor uh, or a classic one is a screwdriver that's placed in between a limit switch uh, so that the uh, kettle hatch always thinks it's closed uh, and won't trigger a boil shutdown sensor. Um, those are areas where the willful piece, that's what an inspector is going to interpret that is, as it's a safety device, you know it's there, and you're bypassing it. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I had the um, misfortune of uh, pulling a guy's arm out of a drop packer one time, and uh, luckily the arm was still connected and he ended up okay, but um, there was a lot of screaming involved and it was, it was pretty scary. Number two is one of those Captain Obvious things that I bet is a disaster at a lot of breweries. I've definitely been in breweries where someone jogs over to a massive first aid kit on the wall only to find a complete mess and none of the items they actually need. True, true story. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. That happened. Unfortunately, that happens way too often, especially in small craft breweries. And, um, you know, the, the other thing that, 
uh, you don't see enough uh, when they're using caustic and acid in uh, breweries. They're supposed to have a, 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 eye, a shower and eye wash station nearby and there's there's rules on how far it can it can be away from where the work is being done because you need to be able to find it if you're blinded and not tripping over hose uh hopefully but uh, yeah that at a minimum at a bare minimum they need to have a uh, saline eye wash or something just to get you by until you can even get to that yeah and what gets a lot of uh breweries is that uh in the osha standard it says that if you don't have a, a hospital, uh, you know, and, and they use the term near proximity, so they don't really define that. Um, but the typical rule of thumb through some interpretation letters and, and different just best practices is, you know, if you're not seeing medical response in four to five minutes, then you need to have uh, some people on site who are trained in CPR and first aid and have first aid supplies available. Um, you know, and, and the first aid supply kits... From an OSHA perspective, they follow the ANSI standard, and, and it doesn't require a whole lot to be in there. Um, you don't have to have all these medications. And, and matter of fact, you know, most of the, the breweries I talk to, I, I tell them not to have medications on site. Um, you know, having some bandages, some roll galls, um, you know, band-aids, uh, like uh, Dana mentioned, the eye wash. Um, those types of things are much more important and are going to go much further for you than, than having one of those big boxes that look so fancy mounted on the wall with, you know, 500 different things in it um, that you'll ne- they'll all expire before you ever use them. Uh, and yes, uh, a lot of the medical stuff does have dates on it for expiration, even alcohol wipes. So uh, it's, it's always a good idea to uh, know what's in there. Um, and if you can uh, afford to look at companies that are out there that that will um, stock those cabinets for you when you purchase them, so that you don't have to worry about it and maintain it. And getting to the eye washes and safety showers, uh, it is an incredibly straightforward audit point uh, for both the brewery and an inspector is to look at it and how often has it been tested. Um, Typically, when, they, you, when you buy them, they will come with a tag, uh, and you want to make sure, for a couple reasons, one, because it's going to be an audit point, they're going to look at it to see how often you've tested it, but also, anyone who's ever had to do it, holding your eyes open uh, for the requisite amount of time is not fun, and when you have hoses or piping that's going through the brewery um you know you can have water that's been standing in that line that is either very cold or very hot um and just be mindful of that uh you know i had a college job where i pulled the all the uh safety showers in the uh chemical labs all all of all of our labs and when they're not handled regularly uh and especially if you're not using the right piping uh i would not personally want rust flakes hitting my eyes uh or find out that all the dust caps when i go to use it the dust caps are gone and there's mold or whatever that's just been growing in there uh pay attention to that because it's really easy for an auditor to walk past it look at it and immediately say well that's not right like that clearly is not being maintained uh, and even though maintained is not 
necessarily written into the code for that, that's where it's going to fall under the general duty clause. You're not maintaining your safety equipment. Therefore, it's a violation. Good point. Yeah, if I could just piggyback one thing onto that on these eyewashes. Um, you know, when you're, you're looking at these, you really need them around your chemical areas and you need to have them in close proximity um, so you don't have to travel through any kind of doorways or anything. And you need to look also from state to state and see what if there are any um, requirements, because I know like in the state that I live in, um, it cannot be those little portable hang on the wall eyewash bottles. It has to be plumbed and connected to a water source. So the state OSHA has gone a little bit above and beyond federal OSHA. So, you know, that's always good to look at not only the high level regulations, but look and see if your local jurisdictions require anything in addition. Yeah, I can think of a couple states that make it very explicit that if the safety data sheet says that the eyes must be rinsed for 10 minutes, you must be able to provide a minimum of 10 minutes of uh, supplied water. Or temper solution. Yeah, and uh, another point on that um, is that the water uh, needs to be between, I believe, sixty and eighty degrees, um, and that's going to be tough for a lot of them to do. Fahrenheit. To the, the, yeah, Fahrenheit. A tempered water uh, for fifteen minutes. All right. So, um, who here can do a good Casey Kasem impression and reveal the number one offender? I don't. I don't think that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you got to be pretty old to remember Casey Kasem at this point. <laughs> this one is is uh, you know, unfortunately, going to happen to a lot of folks. And and uh, but you know, hopefully we can we can help them with that. And specifically, it's hazard communication. Um, And the definition there is we have an obligation as employers to tell our teams what are the risks, what are the things in this facility. uh, And I say facility deliberately because it's wider than just the brewery. It's things that are happening in the tap room. If you have warehousing, it is all of it. What are the things uh, in our facility that can reach out and hurt you? Um, there's a large section about it that uh, touches on chemical, uh, but I'm going to strongly encourage to recognize that it is broader than that. Uh, the chemical just has to be explained in a very particular way. Uh, but the if you're working from heights, you need to bring that up. All of the pieces, CO2, pressure, all the things that we've just talked about, um, we need to relay that information because they can't protect themselves from hazards they're not aware of. Yeah, and this one, maybe ironically or not so ironically, is is usually year over year within the top five of any industry citation list. Um, for some reason, it seems to be one of the hardest standards to comply with, even though it's the way it's laid out and the requirements of it are fairly straightforward and simple. Um, you know, having the safety data sheets that are available, knowing what hazards they're there, communicating and training that to the employees and labeling the chemicals. Those are, are relatively simple, straightforward requirements, in, in my opinion. Um, but for some reason, it becomes one of the most often cited and hardest standards for any company to comply with. 
Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing uh, that happens with that too is, especially in the craft brewing industry, um, OSHA's take on things is if you don't document it, it did not happen. And I'm sure that's where a lot of them may be doing, you know, the, the, the training on new employees and so forth. But if you're not documenting that and have them sign off, in OSHA's view, it did not happen. So all in all, we're, talk, we're looking at 21 citations, over nine inspections, and over $54,000 in penalties. Other than rolling the dice and hoping OSHA doesn't show up, what's a brewer to do here? I mean, the, the first thing is um, you want to understand why they're there. You don't want to become confrontational. You don't want to challenge them in any way. Um, and, and you definitely don't want to tell them they can't come in. Um, OSHA has the ability to, if you, if you say, hey, you're not coming in my place, they have the ability to go to a magistrate or a local court and get a warrant just like any police officer and make entry into your facility. So you, you want to handle it with professionalism and you want to uh, be courteous, but you also want to understand why they're there. Um, there uh, is currently a national, uh, excuse me, a local emphasis program uh, that's being conducted um, in uh, Region 8, which is Colorado and out that direction, um, where OSHA is, is, is visiting a lot of breweries, brew pubs, uh, and other alcohol manufacturers. Um, and that's something that we have a member of the Master Brewers uh, Safety Committee on a um, committee with other organizations that are in contact with OSHA to understand what they're looking at and looking for. Um, so if we see things, you know, we'll we'll mention those from the safety committee. Um, the other thing to do is um, document everything that is said and done. Uh, if the compliance officer is walking through the facility and they make a note or they take a picture, you need to make a note and take a picture. Um, and if they're taking a picture of a particular piece of equipment or a certain area, you need to try and take uh, a couple of different pictures from different angles so you can kind of relive that moment and understand what they were looking at. So if they come back and say, this is an issue, uh, you can have that discussion of why it's an issue or you can contest it if you think it's not. Um, Take full advantage of the opening conference to ask questions uh, and then the closing conference, because when they come in, they will sit down with you and and go over why they're there and what they're doing and what they're looking for and how long they're going to be there. Uh, After they spend their time on site, they're going to sit down with you again and talk about what they have found, uh, what their proposed items are going to be. And and so take that time to ask questions and understand. and then another part is uh, most often OSHA is going to want to em- engage themselves with employee interviews. They're going to want to talk to some of your employees. Um, make sure you explain to the employees that it's a it's a time to be open, um, you know, to have a, a good conversation. Um, but I would, you know, uh, be a part of that conversation as well, you know, so that you can hear what's being said. OSHA can ask to do um, employee interviews without management around. Um, but you can ask to have an, a representative in there with the employee uh, who's a non-biased, non-management person to, to listen to what's going on. So, you know, just you just kind of have to take it professionally one step at a time, ask as many questions as you can, document as much as you can, um, and, and then, you know, uh, take it one step at a time after that. 
the other thing I was uh, going to bring up along with the, the OSHA alliances that the craft brewing guilds, uh, there's one here in Colorado. I know Ohio has a really strong OSHA alliance um, with the, and uh, OSHA is really uh, not, they don't want to go out and just find people. That's, that's not why they're, you know, visiting breweries these days they are really trying to make sure that uh, the employees are are safe and i love the collaborative uh thing especially between mbaa and baa uh the brewers association on safety we we make that uh information uh available for free um and there are there are resources out there and if you're going to the cbc um we're actually uh sponsoring the safety boot camp on um Friday, uh, September 10th, I believe it is. And uh, so you, you can get a lot of information from that. But uh, there are resources out there, and I, I really implore people to take advantage of that. Yeah, and I, I would piggyback off of uh, that point. OSHA, part of it is they know to a degree what they're looking for. They're not always familiar with the brewery context. Um, and if you come across from an adversarial standpoint, uh, that is 100% going to get you kicked out of one of those uh, meetings with employees. Uh, you still can have someone in the room, but if you're hostile, I promise you it won't be you. Um, and But they have access to information that's coming through workers' comp claims, and they will look at what are the industries. It's one of the... Where's, some of that local emphasis is coming from what are the industries that are having a lot of claims uh, and a lot of injuries? They are going to start to build inspection lists off of those particular industries. And another point that I think is important to realize, there are many states with their own OSHA, uh, OSHA compliant state run organization. So like California is one of them where you're not going to see a federal OSHA inspector, you're going to see someone from California OSHA, Cal OSHA. Um, Michigan has that. Minnesota has that. There's a variety of states. Really pay attention to if your state has its own safety organization, regulator specifically, know what those regulations are. Because while they can never be less than the federal, they have to, at bare minimum, meet the federal standard. They are allowed to go over and above. Uh, so a good example would be in Minnesota, it's the hazard communication piece. It's not just training a new employee that's written under federal, uh, but all affected staff must be trained on an annual basis in Minnesota. Uh, and there are other states that do that as well. So make sure you know what the local and state uh, requirements are, because that's the actual standard you're going to be held to. I just think a great way to summarize all of this is, is very simply that, that OSHA is not the, the big bad enemy. Uh, and the citations are there truly to try and protect the employees. And OSHA even has programs where you can reach out voluntarily and have them come in in a non-enforcement way to help you learn, to help you improve, and to provide that that safe workplace for your employees. So in the end, this list is here from us to, to show you some highlights of things to concentrate on. 
But at the end of the day, looking at safety, doing the hazard analysis, and trying to provide the safest area for your employees that you can is, is the best thing we can do for those human resources that we have. That was Brian Godfrey, Dana Johnson, and Gary Nicholas here on the Master Brewers podcast. If you're headed to Denver for CBC next week, check out the safety boot camp Dana mentioned, as well as the presentation Gary is giving on SOPs alongside both Riley Sites and yours truly. Look for links to that in the show notes, as well as to the top 10 OSHA Brewery Citations Toolbox Talk behind today's countdown. And don't forget that one pager references lots of additional toolbox talks related to specific citations that you should be ready for. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers. United we brew.